between artificial intelligence and automation, jobs are going to disappear and they're going to keep disappearing for a long time. Yes, there will be new jobs. There is churn, but not at equal proportions. There will not be employment for everyone. We need to decide how are we going to keep people out of poverty when there's not enough work for everyone? And what will people do with their time, talent, and energy when they don't have traditional employment in the way that we think about it now? Welcome to episode 42 of The Future of Work, the podcast that looks at every aspect of work in the future. Brought to you by Wonder for their blog Chaos and Rocket Fuel. We release two podcasts a month featuring industry experts and thought leaders discussing how work is changing and evolving. The future of work is now. I'm Doug Folks, and this week with Wonder CEO Claire Haydar, we catch up with Michael Solomon an established entrepreneur and the co-founder of 10X Management, a premier tech talent agency and 10X Ascend, a boutique compensation negotiation service. More about those later. Michael has also founded Brickwall Management, Musicians on Call, the Kristen Ann Carr Fund and We Are All Music Foundation. With Richard Blumberg, he is the co-author of Game Changer, how to be 10x in the talent economy, a fascinating book which reveals the secrets of becoming a 10xer for anyone in any industry, a must-read for everyone in HR. Today we will explore what is 10x talent and why you should be using it, how some people manage to self-sabotage their own work-seeking efforts, and the blind spots in current-day talent management. But first, after Claire expresses some dismay at the similarity of the questions that are being asked to Michael about HR, we dive into the questions that should be asked in and around HR circles. Michael, hello. So good to have you here with us today. One of the things that happened to me while I was preparing for this podcast today was I realized that a lot of the same questions are being asked to yourself and Rashan as you guys are going through this journey. I mean, naturally, you guys have just written a book together. You do very close work together. And I was listening to some of the podcasts that you guys have been on, you know, reading some of the interviews. And my, my description, like the word that actually came to mind while I was planning was this feels like a bit of an echo chamber. And so I want to dive right in and I actually want you to flip things for us. I want you to talk about the questions that you feel companies are not asking right now and the things that they really should be deeply understanding about talent that they're not considering. Take us out of the echo chamber. I'm thrilled to do that. The biggest conversation that needs to happen internally that I don't think is happening enough and enough at the high enough, high enough levels is the world okay. has changed <laughs> a gazillion degrees from where it was 18 months ago and certainly where it was 18 years ago. And how much has our HR system really changed and what do we need to be thinking about for now and for the next five years as work is changing? And it's so evident that these conversations aren't really happening because the behaviors that we see mirror the behaviors that were happening 20 years ago. There are some subtle changes, but not big ones. So I think the internal conversation is what's changed and how do we address that? And, and, you know, at the top of the list is top talent is harder than ever to come by and really requires a different approach. And then 
when you look at the approach that top talent needs, it's actually very similar to what millennials and Gen Z needs. And they're completely different than the generations that came before them. And I don't believe many companies have changed their policies and their behaviors based on the change in the marketplace. So that's the internal question. The external question, and this speaks to hopefully what they come to a conclusion with as the internal answer, is they need to start asking candidates completely different questions than they've asked before and a lot more questions. So most processes between a recruiter and a candidate, you know, obviously they ask interview questions, but before they make an offer, they ask one question. What's your salary requirement? Maybe sometimes they say, what's your comp requirement? That's it. That's the only thing they ask before they make a job Mm -hmm. offer as though that is the only thing people care about. And by the way, let's say their goal was to make $200,000, but they got a $175,000 offer from a company that met all of their other needs and was perfect fit for them in every other way, or they got a $210,000 offer from a company where the culture was horrible and their life was gonna be miserable and nothing but work and pain. Do you think that those offers are are like that money is all that cares and that and that this, these generations mm. and this top talent is just going to go for the highest dollar? They're not. How can you even answer that question without knowing everything else? Well, how much vacation time do people get and how much do they take? And can I work from home? And do I have to work specific hours? And is there room for growth? And there's we created a lifestyle calculator that allows people to contemplate all these things, which we can come back to later in our talk. Okay, hang on a minute there. I actually want you to go into that right now. Okay, so you said something very interesting there. You said we should be asking more questions and different questions. So fully agree with you that the the major question tends to be around that comp offer. Can you dig a little bit more into why more questions and what types of different questions? So in that internal conversation, anybody who's got a a real curiosity as they ask the questions, will start to uncover that top talent and Gen Z and millennials really care about their personal mission. So if you don't understand what the basics of the human being that's sitting in front of you and what they care about, you don't actually know how to explain how your company fits into it, or maybe your company doesn't and you shouldn't be hiring that person. But just not understanding that bit, it's a very simple equation. People used to hire people who could do a job. And the employees understood that they had to do what they were told at work. They would show up and the boss would say, have that on my desk at 3.30, and they would do it. There was no discussion. It was a very different culture for many, many, many decades. That's not the same relationship that employees want to have with their employers anymore. And if you can't find the way that the candidate sitting in front of you fits in with your company's plans and how it fits into their plans, you've got a mismatch and it's only going to be very, it's going to be a very temporary relationship. You might as well hire a freelancer. Michael, from my side, uh, nice to meet you and welcome to the, the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm going to sort of almost continue on a similar vein, but maybe hit it from a slightly different angle. What would you say is the number one blind spot that you can see in the world of talent management at the moment? Um, I think the biggest blind spot is a lot of the people managing talent because it's often goes to more senior roles are people who are not necessarily from the younger generations for the talent that they're managing. And I'm not sure that they've done the homework to understand what's important. And I think that's a huge blind spot. And I'll just go a step further because we talk a lot about blind spots in Game Changer. The first thing is you have to be open to it and ask other people, what are my blind spots? 
I do a survey once a year for everybody that I encounter professionally and, and personally in a year where I give them an anonymous survey to tell me about my blind spots. I want to know them. I want it on 11. I don't need the sandwiched, you know, nice stuff. I really want to know where am I falling short? Where am I annoying people? How have I offended anyone if I have, which I turns out I had one year. Like you just have to be open and curious. And by the way, that's exactly what top talent wants is they want an environment where they can get great feedback because that's how they continue to grow. So tell us a little bit about the lifestyle calculator that you guys have have worked on. I think that's a really important point to do that here. Is this a tool in your guys' opinion that companies should really be taking seriously and have something equivalent, if not this tool, when it comes to researching candidates? So we have um, a company called 10X Ascend, which is a compensation negotiation advisory service. So we're helping people who have job offers figure out how to negotiate them, and we get really in the weeds on helping them in that process. In order for us to be able to succeed in doing that, we have to know what's important to that person because we don't assume it's just about salary. Of course, that's important, but different people have different needs. And over the course of the time that we've used this, I've never seen two people fill them out the same way. You get 100 points and you get, and there are 24 different attributes that go into where you get to distribute those 100 points. They range from things like salary, equity, annual bonus, signing bonus, insurance and retirement benefits to location of work. Do you have an office or a desk? Do you have an expense account? Is there a relocation budget if you're moving? How long does vesting take? What kind of equity are you getting? I won't go through all of them because I think it'll take too much time. But again, this is that when somebody's done filling this out, the two pieces of feedback we get are, wow, I hadn't thought about that before. I'm really glad to have taken 15 minutes to really give some thought to what I want. And then the second thing they say, you know, is I'm glad you now understand what I want so you can help me. And then we build the whole negotiation around their their preferences. There is no reason that every company that is going to make an offer to a candidate should not be using some version of this. It gets trickier when it's the company asking the question, but if you have 100 points, you can't put them all on one thing. So you just start to get to understand and you get to present things a little differently. So for somebody, just to give an easy example, for somebody who really cares a lot about equity, if we're talking about a, a company that's not publicly traded, that's still got private equity, knowing to how and, and what to explain to that person about your equity and your, and your equity plan is a really important thing for the person doing the hiring. Because if your equity plan, let's say you're giving out options, if you have a five to 10 year exercise period, that's a very big difference than the companies that have 30 to 60 day exercise periods. That's a huge advantage. Mm. You don't, if you don't even know that the person, how much the person values equity, you don't even know that you should explain that. You don't like, there's so much nuance here and it's not an endless time suck and it doesn't all lead to giving more to the, to the candidates, to the employee. In a lot of ways, it works quite the opposite because you're able to give them a lot of things they want when you maybe can't give them all of the, the cash comp that they want. It's so, so true. So you've touched on it. You've shared with us that you guys have this agency. Can you tell us a little bit very quickly, like one sentence, what both yourself and Rashawn do and not just about your book, but specifically about the agencies that you guys run as well, Michael? Absolutely. I'm going to do the shortest version of this story I can. So 26 okay. years ago, we started an artist management company in the music industry. We've managed people like John Mayer, and we still manage Vanessa Carlton and Citizen Cope and, you know, quite a few who many, many listeners will have heard and quite a few people who are not necessarily as well known. 
And we've been doing that for quite a while. As the music industry got disrupted in the early 2000s, we started to think that we might need a, an alternate source of income. And after a lot of thinking about how to iterate or pivot or, or something, which wasn't exactly the right term because we, we kept the entertainment company, we started the first ever technology talent agency. And this is for very high level freelance technology professionals and we're their talent agent and we help them find their engagements, we negotiate them, we contract them, we invoice for them and we take all the pain out of it for them. The value to the companies who come to us is that we have pre-vetted talent that we can spin up in usually days um, time. It's, it's often the companies and this is part of the reason we wrote the book that slow that process down but we have people who are ready to go very quickly. As is customary in most freelancing industries, there's a buyout provision that if you try and steal one of our freelancers and hire them full time, um, you pay us a buyout, which looks sort of like paying a recruiter. Because that would be happening two, three, four times a year, our tech clients, the tech talent, would ask us to help negotiate those offers if they if they fell in love with the company. And that's where we sort of built our muscles for negotiating full-time job offers and then realized that there was an opportunity for a standalone service. So 10X Management is the freelancer talent agency, and then 10X Ascend, which was the most recent addition, is helping is the negotiation service. I'm just going to take a short break to mention our sponsors, Wonder and Pattern. At Wonder, they teach you how to work smarter using tools that enhance collaboration and identify unnecessary barriers, breaking legacy behaviors before they destroy your team's professional productivity and personal health. Pattern is their new product that identifies trends across multiple platforms. Email, calendars, tasks, video conferencing, workflow management, and it combines them to help each team member learn and grow as individuals, as leaders, and in comparison to their peers in the marketplace overall. You can check them both out at wonder.com. That's W-N-D-Y-R and lastly, just before we rejoin Claire and Michael, if you are finding this podcast of value, please follow us on your platform of choice. Remember, we have new content published twice a month. I know this is a bit of a controversial question that I'm asking here, but I'm curious because I'd love to unpack with you whether you and Rashan think that this is potentially a natural consequence of a globally connected work world and work that this type of elitism is going to come into the workforce, okay? Or do you think that this is something that long-term is going to cause problems for many while creating opportunities for a few select people? Wow, that's a big question. So yes, what we do is inherently elitist and I don't want to dance around that. We are providing services to you know the best-in-class people who are highly in demand. The reason that we can exist is because there's a supply and demand imbalance. So I think let's sort of call that what it is. I do think that there's room, and we talk a lot about this in Game Changer, for the kind of services we provide to exist in many fields for many people, not just where the supply and demand imbalance is crazy, but where there is a supply and demand imbalance. And I've, I've seen so much opportunity for you know, professionals who are good at the business side of things or good at the negotiation side of things to help people who aren't. I mean, it's that simple. And, and everybody has to be willing to recognize what their strengths and weaknesses are. To answer your bigger macroeconomic global question, I think what we're seeing 
and this is really hard to talk about, and it's a big topic of interest for me. We've put a website out on this topic. I got to know Andrew Yang before he ran for president on this topic, is the fact that between artificial intelligence and automation, jobs are going to disappear, and they're going to keep disappearing for a long time. Yes, there will be new jobs. There is churn. There's jobs that are going away and new jobs that are being created, but not at equal proportions. There will be far fewer jobs. There will not be employment for everyone. And as a society, we need to decide two things. How are we going to keep people out of poverty when there's not enough work for everyone? And the second one is what will people do with their time, talent, and energy when they don't have traditional employment in the way that we think about it now. We built a website called The Day After Labor, which is trying to just educate people about what we're seeing. There's a lot of smart people, very smart people, who think this is just like the Industrial Revolution and the Agricultural Revolution, and that this is just churn. Jobs are going to disappear, but new ones are going to be created in somewhat equal proportions. I am not of that school. You saw this trend actually even starting to happen in the Industrial Revolution. So one of the very practical examples that I very often share with companies when we're working with them is if you just look at Mercedes as as an example of this, you know, they lost thousands and thousands of people on the actual production lines. And yes, their design department went from four people to 8,000 people, but that shift from four to 8,000 did not equal the shift of the people who were replaced by robots on the factory floors. If that was happening in the industrial revolution already, absolutely yes to what you've just shared. This, this is a problem. As you say, we're literally putting the wheels of motion for poverty into motion. The other side of the seesaw is all of these people that are actually highly qualified, highly skilled people. What are they going to be doing? Two major questions that we need to be asking. Do you believe that this is a model that you guys are going to be able to capitalize on, but that you see the trend being that a lot of current recruitment and people representative agencies are going to have to adopt because things are going to become more elitist and more competitive? The bad news is yes. I think this is going to continue to go in this direction. And I think that what hasn't really been written about the gig economy is that the gig economy is not a fixed state of being. The gig economy is essentially a rest area on the highway between the employed world we lived in and the unemployed world of the future. And I say that the easiest way, you know, the the biggest example for the gig economy is sort of rideshare drivers. Like it's a per, it was the perfect thing for people to fill in when they needed time. It works really well. And it's helping a lot of people who lost other jobs have be able to make money quickly. The problem is, as soon as we have autonomous vehicles, those jobs are gone again. And those people are then moving. Maybe there'll be something else in the gig economy for them to move into. But a lot of them will be displaced. And then they're just going to be in the unemployable or unemployed category. And so I think that we are absolutely moving in that direction for sure. The good news is that the top talent, the top tech talent that we talk about and that we work with, one of the great traits about that group of people and one of the ways that we identify 10Xers is people who love hard problems to solve and really like the harder the problem, the more excited they get. And the problems that we're talking about are really, really hard problems. So while yes, this sort of elite are going to continue to have incredible job opportunities and they're going to continue to make more money and it's going to be great for them. Many of them are actually really focused on 
what to do about these issues. And I, I believe because these are some of the best and brightest people in the world that they're going to start to figure out at least partial solutions, if not real solutions. Michael, in these um, podcasts, Claire is forever digging deeper down the rabbit hole. And I'd just like to pull back and, and try and simplify things sometimes. So in a nutshell, what is the difference between 10x talent and average talent? If I'm recruiting, what are the differences? I love working with the 10x talent that we work with, not just because they're smart, but what they bring to the table is, and this is obviously a gross generalization, but this is really how we look for and look at talent. They're obviously very smart and very capable and skilled. There's a lot of people who have those two things that don't go on with the rest of this list, which is they have a really high EQ. So they're not just smart, but they can communicate their intelligence in ways to help other people in the room understand their ideas. They love solving big problems. They are lifelong learners. So whatever skills they have, they have a good sense will not carry them through the rest of their lives. And they are continuing to learn new things. And not just because they're going to need them for work, but they're curious. They're curious about everything. So most of the people that we work with, not only do they code, you know, however many software languages that they do, but they speak other languages, they play music, they do outdoor activities. This is a typical profile. They're very passionate and engaged people. They care about mission and they often care about something, you know, things that are not just related to themselves. So when you put that all together and then you add in, as I mentioned earlier, they like feedback, which is part of the way that they learn. And they're open to being wrong, which is because feedback is often what you're not doing right. So they approach things with curiosity. When you put that all together, what you've got is this incredibly powerful human being that is capable in so many different directions. On the flip side, if you just take a couple of those things away, there's something we talk about in the book called the sabotage impulse, which is you could have all of those things except for if you're not open to feedback and you're not willing to admit error, you really have a very limited way to advance yourself because you're going to constantly bump up against your blind spot and never get past it because you're not willing to hear that it exists. This list that you've just shared here, like, I mean... As somebody who's who's built multiple companies, and um, Doug's wife is actually my co-founder, so he has you know very real insight into this as well. It's you definitely have that pool of people who are curious, high EQ, mission orientated, lifelong learner, like solving hard problems, and then a group of people who have all of that, but they have that sabotage impulse, and it literally just prevents any growth. And it can derail the whole team because often people who, who aren't willing to accept their responsibility for things are what I fondly call a flamethrower or a blamethrower, sorry, which is mm. where, you know, everybody around them is ducking and covering because you never know what's coming your way because they don't, nothing was their fault. One of my favorite interview questions to ask is, please tell me about a time you made a mistake. And of course, I have no, I don't care at all about what the mistake was. I just you know, half the people tell me about a mistake and what they learned from it. And that's great. And how they took responsibility for it. And then other people tell me about a mistake that they start out saying they made. And by the time they're done, they really explain how it wasn't their fault at all. You can tell which one moves forward in the process and which one does not. How do you, in an interview, test for that sabotage impulse? Is that the question that you're using to test for that? That is the question that I'm using, using okay. to test for that. And you can, you can definitely poke around a little bit in there because people, you know, there's plenty of people who are smart enough to sort of see what you're after. But if you, if you get an answer and you suspect a little bit, you, you start to push on 
well, you know, oh, so it was your mistake. So how did you how did you fix that? And then you start to hear, well, did, did, did they do anything to rectify whatever damage they may have caused? And then when they start to talk about that they didn't rectify it or that they didn't do it, then there, there's often excuses that come into play there. Michael, we've been speaking generally at, about what you do, and I'm just going to turn it inward and just get a bit personal. Yourself and Rashan have got a, a set of skills that obviously you're using to massive advantage. Some of those skills will be overlapping. What makes it difficult for others to compete with you guys? That's a really interesting question. And since we started 10X Management, which is almost a decade ago, there's been an enormous, I mean, there, there were people who were, who were sitting in our space before, not with the same approach that we had. There's been a giant influx of companies that try and match talent with employers. Most of them are platforms and try and do it in an automated way, which I have all the respect in the world for, but talent's a little bit more complicated than that. And what we can do by being what, what we describe as a personal shopper as opposed to a shopping mall is really understand somebody's needs. And because we work with our talent for long term, these are not people who are in between jobs and freelancing because they, they don't have a job at the moment. These are people who choose that lifestyle. We get to know them. So we can really identify in many instances, not just who has the right skills, but who has the right interest and the right experience to be able to take on a project. That's not to say that some of those platforms don't offer you a similar capability, but it's a lot more work for the, on the employer side, on the company side, who's trying to, to bring somebody on. The other factor is we're, you know, we have a very highly curated group of people. So, you know, there's no guarantees. I'm not going to say we've never had a problem on an engagement because that would be that would be foolish. But it's much less let the buyer beware. And the last thing I'll say is we're really there if there is a problem to try and resolve it. You know, at least you get the sense that we look for people who don't try and run from problems. But we are also people who like to face problems head on. I was just thinking there as you were talking about getting to know people and placing them. Have things got easier with the change to much more remote working in your experience now that people can work anywhere and do work anywhere? Yes. 18 months or two years ago when the pandemic started, we probably had 60 to 70% of our business that was remote, but there were a lot of companies that would not accept that. And we have examples in the book and we have examples in life of people who really lost out on working with somebody fantastic because in their head they needed to see that person's fingers on a keyboard. Even though they didn't know how to write or read code, somehow having them in the office meant something to them. And it's sad. And actually, one of the reasons we wrote the book was to sort of help move HR and, and leadership at companies in the right directions to be able to work with these kinds of people. And I'll, I'll come back to that in one second. But the, the pandemic really shifted the needle on that, which is wonderful. That particular element has moved rapidly in the right direction. You know, there's still issues where, you know, asynchronous work, a company wants it done during business hours, even though there's not any communication that's happening. And we don't quite understand if this person does their best work between 6 p.m. and 2 a.m., why you want them working between 10 and 6 p.m. Like, just doesn't make sense to me. If you need them for a call, of course, they need to be available. That's not I'm not saying the whole world should bend to them. But so much of this is about allowing people to do their best work in the ways that they're going to deliver the best results for you. And there's lots of issues in a physical location that come up that are terrible for software engineers and designers. You know, getting tapped on the shoulder when you're in a flow state just, you know, it takes a while to get into that state. And now you're working at peak performance 
and somebody taps you on the shoulder with something benign, but it might take you an hour or two to get back to that state. That's not good for the employer. That's not good, efficient. Um, Michael, I want to ask a personal question of you along this exact topic is what's, what comes after Labor Day for you and Rashawn? What what would I term it? Becoming extinct in terms of what you guys do and then having to evolve towards a different state. The good news is I don't see being replaced by an algorithm for what we're doing. It's not okay. impossible. I mean, I even have penciled out some ideas about what a negotiation machine would look like, you know, an actual algorithm that would create, and it wasn't just for what we do, but create a, a way of negotiating between two parties that was that's kind of interesting. I haven't pushed past just the initial thinking about it, but I don't think we're going anywhere. I think that there's too much nuance and too many variables in the kind of deals that we work on. And frankly, the more valuable these high-end people get, the more need there is for us and um, I'm, you know, candidly, I'm old enough that I don't think I'm going to live through, or at least be working through, uh, another 20 years when I w- might have to worry about that. But in the next 10, which is hopefully I'll be done by then, uh, I, I think I'll be fine. But that doesn't mean that I'm not putting time and energy into the problem because I think this problem about what people do in the future is massive. And I actually, yes. I, I really wish that we could create a national think tank to approach this problem with the, the level of seriousness that it's needed and that companies would lend their best talent because it's very hard for the government to get amazing talent. They do in, in some sectors where they where they, they really lend themselves to it, but there's, there's so many places where government can't hire the greatest people. And if there was a public-private partnership to approach this issue, I think it would be great. But, but the bottom line is, for most people, this topic of job loss in the future is not ranking as a top problem yet. And that's really what I'm focused on is people, before the planet burns us to death, we're going to have another problem that's you know, sort mm-hmm. of as big. It's not as, bi- it's not as big in that it doesn't affect every single human being the way that climate change does, but it's pretty big and it's going to really affect right. everybody. And for all of the people who are thinking, oh, I don't have to worry about this. I have plenty of money or my job's not going away. How do you think it's going to feel to live with all that money and that comfortable lifestyle when there's massive numbers of people who are, you're not going to be able to enjoy your money is what I'm trying to say. You're not going to be able to enjoy exactly. You're going yeah, like to have to build, you know, taller walls and have security. And and really, it's not going to be any kind of real life at all. So let's figure out how do we take care of each other and move into the next phase with a little bit more humanity than we have in the past. Okay, so now we're going to a completely different tangent here, Michael. You and Rashawn are childhood friends. Tell us the story about one of the most mischievous things you guys did. Oh, goodness. There's quite a few of those. So let's... I, I knew there would be, which is why this question is in here. <laughs> well, let's see. There's a few things that are easy to talk about. Our entrepreneurial spirit started in high school, and that involved several businesses that were not completely legal. So we threw keg parties for high, in high school, charging you know 5 or $10 a head um, in various spaces in New York City, um, and made some money that way, which was quite fun. One of the people we did that with has actually gone on to a life in the hospitality world and owns restaurants and still throws parties and made quite a living out of it. We also had a fake ID business. That one's actually, that one's pretty awesome because there's a great business learning in there, which is, so we, we were doing this, it was illegal. You know, we sold quite a few of them. And at some point somebody came back to us and said, 
hey, dudes, you've misspelled the word license on these fake IDs. <laughs> um, some bouncer called me out on it. Oh, that was interesting to know. And what we concluded after that was that this was the greatest defense we would ever have should we ever be caught and arrested. So we kept license misspelled. And should we have ever needed to defend ourselves, we would have said clearly this was a novelty item never meant to confuse or defraud anybody in terms of getting into a bar since we didn't even spell, spell the word, correct, word correctly. <laughs> the business lesson there is sometimes trouble and mistakes are opportunity. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. Am I allowed to ask how many of these fake IDs you sold? Um, you're allowed to ask. Um, I don't know that I remember. I'm going to say <laughs> north of 70 and under 100. But I, that's, I'm, all, I'm not being more specific because I really just don't remember. And that's the best guess. You just don't remember. Okay. Very interestingly, when I was researching both yourself and Rashan, it was very interesting to me that there's actually a love and a passion for medical, which is not often when you see, you know, co-authors, very lifelong friends, that type of thing. You tend to, you know, I mean, you're two unique individuals. You tend to have both of your things. But both of you, in some shape or form, are involved in medical giving back to the community. Share with us that a little bit. I'd love to know if it's just a byproduct of life experiences or if there is actually a deeper passion specifically for medicine. I think it's a little bit of both. Among other things, he's, okay. he's married to, a, to an OBGYN. So he's got mm -hmm. medical all around him all the time. So that's, that's for sure there. And then our life circumstances are such that when I was 19, I dated a woman um, from, I guess, 19 to 23, who was diagnosed with a rare cancer called a sarcoma. And she passed away from that. And that was a pretty informative thing at age 23 in our lives. Her family and we, at her request, along with some of her friends, set up a foundation in her name, which has now raised somewhere in the neighborhood of $25 million since then. Um, for sarcoma research and treatment um, and, and other programs for teens and young adults with all kinds of cancer, because that's a group that sort of falls in between certain cracks in, in, in the cancer world. Mm. So there, that was a personal experience. From that, I have ended up founding two additional organizations, one 21 years ago, which is called Musicians on Call, that's now the largest provider of music to healthcare facilities in definitely in the United States, probably in the world, and growing really well. And I often have referred to that as my first child because it was before I had kids. And it's just been so rewarding and so successful. And then more recently, I founded another music nonprofit that's raising money out of, uh, it's called the We Are All Music Foundation, and it's raising money out of Wall Street and wealthy families to try and fund the best-in-class music nonprofits that focus on healthcare, music education and poverty cessation. Michael, we're definitely coming towards the end, unbelievably, of our time together. And it's quite interesting that you just started to talk about music. And the last question that I've got is really about where it all started. And the question I've been dying to ask for the whole conversation, because it's something that I'm very passionate about, having grown up in the UK in the, the 1980s and listening to all that amazing 1980s UK pop music. My question is, is why music? What got you into music? Maybe you could give us a couple of examples of some sort of strokes of luck or circumstances that, that got you and music together. I think if I'm really honest, being a teenager growing up in New York, 
we were exposed to a, a children of a lot of music industry professionals. So I think we got to see that there was an industry behind the, the music that we loved at a pretty early mm -hmm. age and even get a little bit of a sense of what that industry looked like. And then the young woman I described who died in 93 was her mother is, is one of Springsteen's co-managers and uh, her father um, is, is a Springsteen biographer. So I was instantly sort of indoctrinated into the Springsteen world. And we talk a lot about this in the book because we interview both Barbara Carr, who's the woman I'm referring to, as well as John Landau, uh, as well, in addition to a couple of other notable music impresarios and uh, and managers. And we talk about Bruce as sort of the first 10Xer we saw. 10Xers are not unique to, you know, to talent and not just Bruce, but his everybody around him was a 10Xer. And part of what made Bruce a 10Xer was that he had surrounded himself with all people who were amazing. And it was it was really that was such an informative moment. And then the other aspects of music is, as in, you know, as a. 18 to 20 year old kid figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. The idea that I could keep wearing jeans, you know, keep late hours, go to clubs, you know, that was all for all, that was all great lifestyle choices. Um, and one of the nice things about my, the arc of our career is that as we sort of reached our forties, when that was starting, starting to get older and not as appealing, the jeans were always appealing, but, but the going out every night became less appealing. We pivoted into having this secondary business that didn't require that. So I feel like we had the best of all worlds and the timing, at least as far as it relates to that, worked out quite well. Michael, um, we're coming to the end of the interview. I definitely think I could have a much longer conversation with you over dinner with some good music. Uh, but what I'd like to end on is, is your and Rashawn's book. And one of the things I'd like to ask you, yeah, just to kind of really pique the interest of, of everybody listening to this is tell us what some of the reactions are from your readers that have surprised both of you the most. The things that people have taken away are largely what we hope they would take away. But there's been a few interesting reactions that were a little bit less on the HR realization and a little bit more about the realization, um, which we, we've already discussed on this, about the future of work and what that looks like for humanity. And, you know, for those, I don't, I don't want to plug another book while I'm in the midst of plugging my book, but Andrew's Yang book called The, the War on Normal People is a must read. If, you, if anything that you heard about the, about the future of work and the, and the disappearance of jobs resonated, Definitely check out the website I mentioned the day after labor and check out Andrew's book. Back to our book. I think the biggest surprise was people who really had no idea about that. And even though it's a very small part of this book, it's really mentioned to give context to everything we're talking about. It was shocking to me how many people just sort of had no idea that this is really on the horizon and near term horizon. The statistics, the projections from everybody, you know, ranging from Oxford to PricewaterhouseCoopers, to, you know, all kinds of credible sources are, are horribly devastating. I, I fully agree with you. Yeah, it is. It, it really is something that we as a company and myself as an individual are, are deeply passionate about. It's a big issue. And on the flip side of this, I serve on the board of, of UNICEF, one of the regional boards here in the U.S. And so naturally, you know, we're looking at it through the, the numbers that impact children because it's UNICEF and it, it really is devastating. It is something that the world really should be paying more attention to. It's happening. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's happening. It's happening. 
Um, and, and unfortunately, the unemployment numbers don't always reflect it because the way our unemployment system works, people who gave up on looking for a job are no longer considered unemployed, even though they are. Yeah. Like they're, they just yeah. couldn't find anything, so they stopped. Michael, thank you so much for being here with us today. It's it's honestly, it's been a great conversation. I came into it knowing that I was going to learn a ton from you, and I, I did. And really looking forward to working with Doug on, you know, the production of this one and, and getting it out there into the world. Totally my pleasure, and I'd be happy to do it on any topic that I know anything about any time. I really enjoyed it. Well, I'm sure we could find more to ask Michael such a knowledge and experience base for all topics HR. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, we would appreciate that you follow us on your preferred platform and share with your friends and colleagues. Just a reminder for more information about Wonder and their new product pattern, you can visit their website. That's wndyr.com. And so from me, Doug Folks and Chaos and Rocket Fuel, stay safe and we'll see you soon.